You are listening to a talk from the New Frontiers Midwest Pastors Prayer Meeting. If you would like more information about New Frontiers in the U.S., please visit newfrontiersusa.org. I've been asked to speak in this opening session on why should we be a people of God's presence and how. Okay, let's ask God to help us, shall we? Father, we love being a people of your presence. We love the possibility of it. We love every time we feel we've touched your presence and been touched by your presence, even shaped by your presence. We thank you for such a high calling. Lord, we who are nothing at all, uh, Lord, that you should desire us to be your special treasure and dwell amongst us. Father, we pray, please let your Holy Spirit be upon us now. Please, Lord, I pray inflame faith and motivation in our hearts as we shepherd your flock in our various locations. Lord, please do us good, Lord, as we've prioritized some of us uh, long journeys. We've gathered uh, to you and to one another. We pray, Lord, please, please, would you bless us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so to be a people of the presence of the Lord is a huge privilege and something we should never take for granted. We need to just step back kind of theologically and realize that with the fall came the uh, banishment from the presence of the Lord. They were cast out from Eden, from the tree of life, from the presence of the Lord. And from then on, the human race has been in exile from the presence of their maker, which is where they should have been. We should have been in fellowship with God. The wonder of Adam and Eve being in the garden, being in close proximity to God, walking, talking, fellowshipping, that was, if you like, the original intention. And the human race has now banished. We are in exile away from the presence of the Lord, outside. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so for us now to be called a people of his presence is a huge privilege. Now God had a kind of program just to remind us. He began with the uh, patriarchs. He began with Abraham. He came to Abraham and uh, said he would be his friend. Through him he would bless all the families of the earth. So a program of reconciliation began to come into place when the promises were made to Abraham. Then you get the people taken down into Egypt. We haven't time to go into those details, but when they come out of Egypt, the exodus, they come out as a people for his presence. It begins with Moses uh, and the burning bush, God drawing very close, the revelation of his name. You could say, when Moses said, who shall I say is sending me? Uh, if you like, the whole of the rest of the book of Exodus is the answer to that, that God is manifesting who he is uh, to a people. He comes to them first, not just a burning bush for Moses, but the whole mountain uh, shakes with power and glory and lightning and thunder. Interestingly, we were in Denver last week, at least in Colorado Springs, right by the mountains, and the pastor there had been up in the mountain the day before we were chatting to him a couple of days, and while there... Uh, there was lightning and people were rushing down from Pike's Peak 
and uh, as he said they were around there, their telephones all clicking on and off and off because the electricity that really surged into the rocky uh, mountain. There was power, uh, energy, and terror. And when you think that's how God uh, revealed himself, and it says they heard a voice of God that grew louder and louder, a trumpet. I think we don't often think of that, that, uh, that two million people heard the voice of God uh, speaking from heaven and committing himself to them. They were his people. He called them his special treasure. He chose them as a royal priesthood. So Israel was to be a priesthood. And we know what the priests were to be. They were priests were to stand out for God. And the priests uh, had blood put on their ears and thumbs and toes. Uh, you know the background. Uh, they were set apart to represent God to the people and the people to God. And then God says, of the nation, you are a royal priesthood. This nation was to be a priesthood for all the nations. And God was beginning to manifest his presence to a people. We know their backsliding led to the danger of his not going with them. And Moses saying, look, Lord, this is what makes your people distinct that your presence goes with us. That's what makes us unique in the earth. The presence of God is what made them unique. You could say they had the Ten Commandments because they say many things about them. Unique words, unique uh, covenant promises. But Moses says, above everything, it's your presence that sets us apart. And I think that's a good basis for us to uh, bear in mind as we uh, consider for ourselves. What are we talking about? Uh, about the presence. Why should, why should we be a people of his presence? Well, it goes back to these kind of roots. And the presence of God was revealed in power so that we find God's power is demonstrated uh, in the initial exodus, the Passover. God shows his power over people. Even Pharaoh is raised up to demonstrate the power of God. Even the armies of Pharaoh come to nothing against his power. Uh, creation itself has to step back. Uh, I love it in the Psalms. It says about the, what, what troubles you, O sea, that you flee. It's kind of mocking uh, the sea that it, that it stood back because God came and, uh, and a path was created. His power over people, armies, his power over creation. And then in the, in the plagues, his power over every false god. The, all those uh, plagues speak against false gods. God could just cut out the sun. He made it dark. He could make the priests have boils all over them. All sorts of uh, demonstrations that God was bigger than any human god you might like to uh, imagine. So God's ca God came in three categories, I would say. He came in power. His presence is represented in power. His power, his presence is represented as time goes by in revelation. So first it's power. You see power in David. You see power in the, uh, the, 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 the judges. You see power in the taking, inheriting of the land, Jericho uh, falling. Power, presence represents power. Presence also represents revelation. Prophets who say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
He's given me revelation. My, and the psalmist, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I'm seeing things. I'm, I'm getting revelation. I'm under, understanding things. Men who could say, his word is on my tongue. The presence of God brings comprehension of who God is. Not the false gods, the false prophets, but God himself making himself known. Again, as I said in Exodus, you could say the whole of the book of Exodus is an answer to who are you? When you get the whole of the giving of the law, you get the, the provision of God in the wilderness, the promise of inheritance. God speaking, but he spoke particularly through prophets. Power, revelation, and then thirdly, I would say presence, the word glory. It's a difficult word to define, it's a difficult word to unravel, but I think presence speaks of the glory of God, his majesty, his excellence, and we find that particularly in the building of the ark, the coming of God on Mount Sinai, and then the psalm says he came on Sinai, then he came, and you get these majestic words about Zion, because Zion is where the temple is, and Zion is where the ark has come, and Zion is where God is pleased to dwell, and it's regarded as the joy of the whole earth. And uh, we find that David's passion to be in the temple, to be in the tabernacle in his day, but pointing towards the temple, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to be in his house, just to behold him. So when we talk about presence, I would suggest these are three uh, categories that we need to have in our minds. This is what in the Old Testament is something of his power, is something of the revelation of who he is, and it's something of the glory, the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory for us to be in his presence, to be restored to glory. That's what I would feel is the Old Testament concept of being in his presence. Okay, then we get uh, the prophecies like Isaiah that talk about his spirit being poured out. And you get the promises of Joel in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit, I'll pour out my presence, my being with you on all flesh. Now that's radical, that's totally different to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's a special place, it's a special location, it's uh, to do with a lot of ritual, a ways of approaching God in this very limited area, only in one city, let it not be in other cities, don't you dare bring your sacrifices elsewhere, why are you jealous of this mountain, all you mountains, because why, it's the mountain God chose. It's very particular in the Old Testament. Then the promise comes to widespread outpouring of the presence of the Lord. John the Baptist introduces Jesus he will plunge you into Holy Spirit. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. There's one coming. Here he comes. Look, the Lamb of God. He will baptize you. He'll plunge you into. <laughs> we can lose the power of that, can't we? Because baptism gets used in all sorts of ways. He will plunge you into Holy Spirit. There's going to come such an outpouring of the presence of God. That's how Jesus is introduced in every gospel. 
is something said four times over in the Gospels, and, and Jesus comes to bring the presence of God in an unprecedented way, to bring God to the people, to open up the way. Ultimately, it'll finish with the, the curtain being ripped from top to bottom. But during his life, even, God is breaking out. And so you find while Jesus is walking the earth, uh, they bring a, a paralyzed man to Jesus, and uh, he says, your sins are forgiven. And they say, who do you think you are? Only God can forgive sin. And uh, really, they're, they're, they're obviously, they're outraged that he's saying, your sins are forgiven. But also, they are saying, look, you want forgiveness of sins? Come to the temple. If you want to come to the temple, uh, your money won't do. You'll have to change it to temple money. So we'll exchange your money to temple money. Then you can buy a lamb from us. We'll offer it. Uh, so actually, we have God in this box, and we run the box. And uh, so if you want forgiveness, although they said only God can forgive sin, probably their motivation was, we have the way to God. And uh, you come through us. And Jesus is out there in the street, and he's saying, your sins are forgiven. And so they're outraged. And so he says, that you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. He says to the sick man, get up and walk. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or get up and walk. And he gets up and walks, and forgiveness is in the streets. God is accessible. And so when they come up to Jerusalem one day, and the disciples come with Jesus, and they say, look at the temple. Matthew 13, look at the temple. And Jesus says, not one stone will stand upon another. That is so radical. Jesus was so radical. And so when he's talking to the woman at the well, and in John's Gospel, chapter 4, and uh, having that conversation, you remember, and she's trying to throw uh, some religious clouds over the story and uh, says, well, should we worship in this city or that city? And uh, in the Old Testament, the answer would have been very clear. It has to be Jerusalem. And Jesus replies, no, neither this city nor that city. God will be worshipped in spirit and in truth. He was ushering in something radically new, the accessibility of God apart from that temple, that special building, that special hill, that special city. It's no longer relevant. We're not looking for this city. We're looking for one that is to come, and we're already come to Mount Zion in a new kind of way altogether. So Jesus is already kind of breaking that down through his ministry. And then during his last few hours, really, with the apostles in John 14, 15, 16, he begins to prepare them for the coming of the Spirit who would replace his being there. The Comforter, the Holy Presence of God will come to you. You are going to be people who live with God in a way that's never been known before. The Holy Presence of God will come amongst you. You'll not be left as orphans. God will be with you. Now, I would see that as a very quick kind of overview of the concept of being in the presence of God. It was a, a very a restricted thing in the Old Testament because of the fall, and then God's great plan to open that up to now, well, yes, the gathered church, the people of God gathered in his presence. And uh, let me just read you um, 
very familiar words in Ephesians 2. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Wonderful Trinitarian verse. So then you're no longer strangers, no longer aliens, no longer exiled, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You're God's household, having been built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the church's calling is breathtaking, utterly breathtaking. The human race is exiled from the presence of God. Now God, through Christ, then those who are in him, God building a new temple, no longer of stones in a particular location, but living stones gathered in all kinds of locations, but are a place for his dwelling, a place for the presence of God. Absolutely fundamental to what we're looking for. A holy temple in the Lord. A dwelling of God in the Spirit. So, we need to treasure the wonder of the gathered local church. We need to see it as awesome. We need to see it with all the delight that was in the old psalmist songs when they said, we're going up to the house of God. We're going to meet with him. We're going to Zion. We're going to meet with the Lord. And beloved, when we gather in our local church, we do need to really help people understand this is breathtaking privilege. We are now coming to the gathered place. We know as individuals, we are lively stones, but it's when we're built together into a house of the Spirit that the phenomenon of being in the presence of the Lord as a gathered people is our highest privilege. So we need to love the church, love gathering with the church, being with the people of God. And all those Old Testament uh, words and images that were restricted in the Old Testament are now for us. And so, you know, it says in Peter uh, about, you know, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, etc. He now says it to us. We are his special treasure. That's what the Old Testament had, unique. You, of all, only you, of all the nations of the earth, you are the people. Now God says that to his church, where God will manifest his presence. We come with that kind of anticipation. We should treasure the local church. Now, I think for myself, when I got saved uh, through personal testimony of my sister getting saved through Billy Graham being in England, I would say no one delighted in the church. It wasn't something that you thought much about. In fact, if you were zealous, you probably left the church. And, you know, you joined Youth for Christ, or you, gather, you, got, you got on with someone, you know, Youth with a Mission, or something, just get out of the church, because the church is a turn-off. That's how it was. The church was boring. 
The church was difficult, and if you were blessed, you might have a very faithful Bible teacher. I was blessed in that. I was a, a very faithful pastor teacher. But the thought of treasuring, gathering to the presence of God was a foreign thought. And to love the church was a foreign thought. As I say, if you love the Lord, many people left the church. Because, well, we want to make Jesus known. And so, yeah, Jesus we're excited about, the church we are bored with. And so, over the last few decades, there's been a radical rethink. And I want us to keep treasuring that. I don't want us to lose that with other priorities that are coming in, other things that, yes, we need to find the place for, but to lose the joy of the church and the wonder of what it is to be the people of God gathered in his presence is a big, big loss. If we lose that, we've lost something God, God delights in. God delights in gathering with his people. God delights in our being in his presence together. And it's a huge part of what it is to be a believer, that the church is a corporate people gathered in the presence of God. From time to time we gather in meetings. From time to time we're scattered into smaller communities. And of course as individuals we're still the city of God as we scatter through our location in our uh, workplaces, our homes, etc. But the gathered place is where he particularly manifests his love. And, Paul, and Jesus said, when she's saying, should it be here or there, uh, he said, no, God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so for us, when we are gathering, I want to just highlight a bit of what that means. That we are gathering to the presence of the Lord. I think we need to think seriously about that. I think as pastors, we need to contemplate that. Uh, as worship leaders, we need to ponder that and say, well, what, what are we aiming for? What, are, what is our expectation? It grows out, as I've said, of theological uh, concepts of being in his presence, of people of his presence. It has some of its outworking in practical things that we need to prioritize to make sure that people don't come casually or indifferent or, well, church is just something we do and really miss the possibility of something glorious. We're together, people of a new age. We're tasting of the powers of the age to come. All things are possible in church. All sorts of things can happen when we gather in his presence because God breaks out amongst us. So, in spirit and in truth. I was uh, recently in Poland. Wendy and I uh, were in Poland because one of the uh, businessmen in the Brighton church uh, had it in his heart to get my grace book translated into Polish. And to be honest, he saw it all through. I mean, at the end he said, I've, it's printed, it's published, it's out there. Uh, would you please come across? We want to promote it. So, I mean, I just went along. Uh, he's, he was the visionary, and he's opened quite a remarkable door. But the last weekend was with a group of Roman Catholic charismatics. Uh, and I've not been with Roman Catholic charismatics much. Uh, first time I ever went to Spain, uh, we were just kind of finding our way when I, one of my very first overseas uh, kind of investigations. And we'd heard of some. We went to see mostly Protestant. We went to one Roman Catholic charismatic group. I didn't know what that would be like. 
and it was quite funny. We went into a room, and it was filled with smoke, but not the kind of smoke you read about in the Old Testament. They were puffing away, and this was Roman Catholic charismatics. In fact, it was very funny. The guy leading on the guitar, uh, between songs, put the cigarette in the chords of his guitar and led us in worship, and it was all a bit peculiar. Uh, and we thought, what on earth is this? But one of my guys, one of the guys on the team was seriously unwell. He kept throwing up what we call Spanish tummy. Uh, uh, the food doesn't always agree with the English. And, uh, and he was being ill. And this guy said, he just went, oh, we'll pray for you. And prayed for Ian, who was immediately healed. And we thought, wow. And my, my friend Dave Mansell said, the proof of the healing was in the eating because he ate a meal afterwards. <laughs> and so he thought, well, God is in this, whatever. Anyway, this time, it wasn't like that. It was one of the most dynamic encounters with the spirit corporate I've been in for a long time. And when we, we, we just gathered this last weekend, there was a house group, and uh, a number of us went away to this camp. And uh, when they said, let's just worship, I mean, barely started. They play the guitar, and these people are just so Holy Spirit conscious. I felt it quite provocative. I thought, I don't know that I have recently been in anything quite so Holy Spirit conscious, so thirsting to encounter the Spirit, so uh, up for an encounter with the Spirit. A corporate, there, there, many started singing in the Spirit immediately. Now, I'm not trying to put a high... You say, oh, you must sing in the Spirit. I'm not talking about technique. I'm just saying these people were reaching for the Holy Spirit straight away. And I think they were so excited that they had encountered something dynamic, accessible, God with us. And so I found that very interesting, having been in the charismatic movement, shall we say, for longer years than I like to say, many decades. Uh, I, I thought, wow, there is an energy and enthusiasm in the spirit here. God is looking for us to expect a manifestation of the spirit. And I want to encourage that. We're wanting to meet him. We want to encounter him. God is looking for those who will worship him in spirit. And it means in the Holy Spirit. And not using that word carelessly, but in the Holy Spirit. So he wants those who worship him in spirit and in truth. I would say that in truth was probably where things began to get a bit frail in this meeting, but they were very actually keen to hear Bible teaching. But as we're worshiping, it's so important also, as we're going to engage with God and engage with his presence, to be reflective on what we are singing and what we are corporately saying. And I'm hoping in this time to leave opportunity that we can discuss, have questions and answers at the end. But I'm trying to move into more pragmatic stuff now, really. That when we are worshipping, we, of course, use song. We use melody. But melody must be subject to truth. And so when we sing a song, it's, what do we want to say to God? What is it we, is in our heart to express? We're worshipping with truth. And so even the selection of the songs we're singing 
is going to help us acknowledge the presence of God. When I was uh, first trying to introduce open worship in the first church I went to, which didn't even have open worship, just had four hymns up on the board and that was it. I said, now, I want to introduce a time of open worship and you know how to explain everything you're trying to do. And uh, they said, what do you mean? Like a favorite song or something? And uh, one guy said, can we sing for those in peril on the sea? It's one of my favorite hymns, you see. So, oh. and so <laughs> the years have slipped by. But at the beginning, it, we, it was really digging down hard rock to try and get something. What are we, really songs should be saying truth that excites our heart about God. So we have to be careful, because it's possible to find melodies that are pretty, but don't say much. Melodies that just say something sentimental. I remember when there was a great song, or at least I say a great song, a very popular song, and it used to have this line, Jesus, 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 lovely, you know. And at the end, last line was this, there's something about that name. I thought, what do you mean there's something about that name? Because it was such a pretty melody. People love that song. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's something about that name. <laughs> what are we talking about? I mean, that is ridiculous. And so you can, you can find what people like it. So love, oh, they love that word. Love him. Jesus, Jesus. There's something, something about that name. Now we've got to say, now hold on, what are we talking about? There's something about that name. That's sentimental trash. It could go on a, <laughs> it, it, you know, go on one of those pretty cards you can get from a Christian bookshop. Something about that name. It's not saying anything. So we, that is not helping our people come into the presence of the Most High God. Something about that name. What sentimental nonsense. So we've got to say, hold on, let's be careful. And I think as we're starting churches, as, as we're working sometimes with very gifted musicians, sometimes we're helping someone find their place with a lovely gift of worship leading. To, as pastors, you need to be involved. You need to be helping people say, well, you know, um, we should ask someone to lead the worship. Obviously, gifts and skills with instruments, etc., is hugely appreciated. We thank God. I thank God for good musicians. I thank God for people who are willing to work hard to bring a band together. At the end of Warrensburg, I went over to Jack and I just said, guys, you contributed so much to our days together. Thank you so much. Great songs, great words. You, you made a big contribution. Thank you. I mean, we honor, but we just need to be careful that we're not just letting them choose things that aren't saying anything. And so to, to choose things that are really expressing worship that's in truth. So if you sing something like, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands, my name is written in his heart. I tell you, by the time you're getting out, the whoa, God! <laughs> See, I want songs that say something profound about God. I mean, me nice melody helps. It really does. I mean, boring melody is a turn-off. So, nice melody helps. But truth, you worship in truth. And, and, I, and I, we just need to work for that all the time that we are coming to celebrate phenomenal 
breathtaking truth. And so often, yes, we will sing songs that lead to celebration and delight. That's what we're looking for. The Bible talks about taste and see. It talks about, I want to be in the house to behold the beauty of the Lord. And sometimes our motive can be, oh, let's sing this quick one, it just gets them going a bit. No, 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 no. It's just not, it's not focused enough. Now, we do need to be wise. And, and when we were here, we did the series on grace a few months ago. And uh, I just said to the guys, because we sang Amazing Grace at the end of one. And what is, I mean, Amazing Grace is wonderful. But actually, it's got a kind of doleful melody. Amazing Grace. You know, it's great. Wonderful words. But, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> so I was I, just chatting to the guys. Says, do you know, uh, do you know Simon Brading's song where it talks about our righteousness and what God has done for us. Well, they put that song, that place took off. Not simply because of melody and words, but because we were declaring and proclaiming, celebrating truth. We had just been teaching it, we've been teaching about grace, and then the people owned it in the worship. They tasted, they got hold of. And actually, it's one of the most wonderful times of talking about the grace of God that I've ever been involved with because you can have some good teaching on it, but when people start to worship in the light of what they've just learned and their hearts rise to it, something happens. There's an encounter with God. that se- People walked out of this place celebrating grace. And I've been in off, I mean, even the last couple of weeks, you know, you can preach it, but you sing something afterwards that, mm. And just you think, well, no, come on, we could be entering in. Because we're worshipping, we're encountering, we're entering the presence. We are beholding. See, the Bible's not frightened of words like that. Taste, see, touch, feel, the nearness of God. Brian brought that amazing word at uh, Warrensburg. I thought it was a wonderful word. But God was not to be touched in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, that woman said, if I could just touch him. And we, we need to encourage people in context to reach to touch him. It's not, I was just singing a few songs, well, I like this one. To really help people. Now, come on, this is an opportunity to encounter God. And that needs, I think, pastoral help. It needs help with, with musicians sometimes to help them think right, to select good songs, because these days with growing meetings, we have worship leaders, which is kind of a fairly recent invention. (laughs) I was very suspicious of it when it first started happening, because when we first experienced the outpouring of the Spirit, we didn't have worship leaders. It was just happening. The songs were just, just, everyone had a song, just coming very spontaneously, and we just taught people, listen for the Spirit. When you feel something, start that song, start that song. And it was happening, but no, no, it's grown in numbers. Worship leader, I'm sure, is a gift of God. I'm no question about it. It's a beautiful gift, and we've been blessed here today with a beautiful gift that can just in a moment lift you to God. It's a beautiful gift, but it's a huge responsibility that for three quarters of an hour, however long, they are the people who largely dictate what we are saying 
to God, our experience of worship, they are choosing our words for us that we're wanting to say to God. That's not a careless thing. And so to help guys think right, if you've got worship leaders in your church that carry that responsibility, maybe you've got a number of different teams, you need to help them think through. Why would you teach, why, would you, why do you value these songs? Which songs do you value? You need to look at it with them. You need to look at lists of songs. So why would you value? What is that saying? What are we saying to God when we sing that? What is our hope when you sing that? What, what, first of all, get principles. Some of you know Toppy, uh, one of the pastors in London. He said for weeks and weeks when he planted his church, he would sit with the musicians every week, helping them prepare what songs they were going to sing on Sunday. Every week, he would make the selection with them to get them thinking right so that we are worshipping in spirit and in truth. In truth. It needs not only to be objective truth, it needs to release something from us. I was talking to Matt Redman once, who I think is one of the greatest, the you know, gifted worship leaders, and he was commenting on some of Stuart Townend's songs with me. We were talking about it quite a bit. And he said, I love Stuart's songs. He said, I just wish sometimes he would have a response line as well as all that great truth so that you're saying all that great truth, you know, theological truth. If only at the end you could say, yes, Lord, and I, I respond to that. I love you, Lord. I, and I felt that was very fascinating to hear him uh, speak in those terms. And I was fascinated when I first heard uh, Stuart talk about his song on the cross, and there was one line in it, first time I ever heard it, there's one line in it, and I said to Stuart, I'm not sure about that line. just happened to be in a meeting when it was being taught for the first time. And he opened a book and said, yeah, I wondered about that line. And he had seven alternatives for that one line. I mean, that is taking seriously, bringing worship to God, saying things that are appropriate. And it's very easy to say very little at all and just say stuff. I want to encourage us to help people get a bigger view of God. And that comes through singing to God great things about him. Great things, I would say, about what Jesus accomplished in his incarnation. I love songs like, you laid aside your majesty, gave up everything for me, suffered at the hands of those you created. And then it comes on to, I really want to worship you, my Lord. Because you say all these great things about him, and then you begin responding. Worship then in the presence of the Lord. Skills to be learned, and I would say, time goes so quickly, uh, a subjective response to worship, the presence of the Lord. See, I think that when we are really in the spirit worshipping, all sorts of things happen. Faith can grow. It just happens. You just begin to work. You see something about God you'd never seen before. And all our dear friends, they come in from tough situations, hard job situations, kids that are causing them heartache, maybe elderly parents, maybe problems with their house, their neighbours. They come with all the stuff that everybody's living with. And in the presence of the Lord, you begin to corporately, together, you begin to focus on him. You have a unique opportunity with nothing else to cloud you to really look at him. 
And faith can grow. People often say, I haven't got much faith. If they had wonderful worship times of encounter with God, faith grows there. People become a much more believing company when they're worshipping in the presence of God with great truth and the Holy Spirit. Their, their faith grows. Their confidence in God, their trust sometimes is restored. But choosing great songs is hugely important to build faith and, and to help people cope with life. And declaring, it says, then they believed his word, they sang his praise. It's somehow owning truth, owning who God is, declaring. And, and to be honest, many of their busy lives, little children, all kinds of things, it's in the meeting, it's in the presence of God, when they sing out things they believe in the presence of the Spirit, faith is undergirded. It's not just a sing-song. We are focusing on him and worshipping him and delighting ourselves in him. And our faith is growing as we do it. God is doing stuff in us as we are in his presence. Love can be rekindled in a wonderful worship time. People who feel I've grown lukewarm, they can just meet with Jesus afresh as they're singing to him songs from the heart and in his presence. Dedication could be expressed. Sanctification could be taking place. God deals with us as we're worshipping. Back there in Genesis 28, one of the first references to the house of God, Jacob, with the ladder to heaven, says, this is the house of God. This is the gateway to heaven. And then makes some promises about giving money. And then once when I was in a worship meeting, and I've testified to this before, we're in a worship meeting, and we're just worshipping God, and our big gift day is coming up. Because we have these three times a year, big gift days, trying to get big money for this building project. And I, and I have what was called a tessa in England at the time, which was a tax-exempt saving something. And if I did it for seven years, and, you know, so for every month I'm putting money away for seven years because it's tax-exempt, I'm being a responsible husband and father for my family, and I'm worshipping, and the gift day's coming up, and the tessa's coming to maturity at a similar time, and we're singing about the great old Wimber song about I really want to worship you, Lord. And it's got this, uh, got this line in it, I'll give you everything. And the girls sing this kind of echo, give you everything. And as I'm singing this, the Lord said, thank you, I'll have the Tessa. <laughs> that was it. That was, that was seven years of saving. Whew, gone. Why? Because in the worship, I'm meeting Jesus. I'm encountering him. I'm expressing delight. I'm worshipping. It's not, oh yes, of course we all love the Lord. It is happening. I'm feeling love and devotion and commitment. And he says, okay, I'll have it. Okay, you have it. Because every time I need grace to set me free. I need grace to release me from being careful and cautious. And what if? And who what? And what about the kids? And what? I, need a, I need a work of grace. And yes, of course, Lord. So you step into something crazy. Why? Because I was worshipping in spirit and truth. So sanctification is happening. I'm getting set free from this passing age. I'm getting one foot into heaven. I'm beginning to live for eternal glory. And so for me, worship is huge. In the presence of the spirit, I'm getting fresh visions of God. 
I'm encountering him, I'm experiencing him, have opportunity to be changed by his presence. So I said I'd have questions, I'd left like four minutes. Uh, I think it's a huge theological thing. We were in exile, we're now in the house of God. We're in the spirit, we're with him. We have to help our people come to him. Questions are asked these days also about what about the outsider, which is not irrelevant, very relevant. But if you become so, so outsider conscious, I was in South Africa and the guy said to me, bring in the word missional, say goodbye to Holy Spirit. I thought it was a bit harsh, but you've got to be, <laughs> you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful. I spoke to my son Simon to bring it right home. I'm in Simon's church now. And the way he started the meeting, I felt made us so outsider conscious that we were less than God conscious. Because he was trying to be sensitive to the outsider. And we could, if we had more than one minute, uh, discuss that a bit. But, and I don't think it's an irrelevant statement. Please don't misunderstand me. It's not irrelevant by any means. But if you so lean that way, you become pragmatic, you become aware of the outsider over much. Over much. That's what I would say. Beware of over much. By all means, let's be aware of the unsaved coming in. We are here to evangelize the world. We're here on a mission. Absolutely. Absolutely. But if the church loses its sense of wonder, encounter, privilege, I know for us, when we first got baptized in the Spirit and we first saw grace, I mean, I've been a Christian for some years by then. There are people in the meeting who have been years, Christians longer than I. And we started singing songs like, When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter. I mean, it was like an incredible release. And the joy of gathering to the presence of the Lord and the privilege of it. When the Lord turned again our captivity, lack of the presence of the Spirit, heaviness, no grace, when the Lord broke that, we were like those that dream. And to come to church, oh, can't wait to get there. Because God will be there. And I'm not even referring to the gifts of the Spirit yet because we want to do that in the next session. But the, the sense of being in his presence has got to be a high thing. It has huge sanctifying, releasing impact on the people who are in danger of being secularized, squeezed into this world's mold. They need a season of being totally set free from another value system in the context of worship. And in the worship and the presence of the Spirit, so much can be accomplished. I was going to say more than discipling. I'm probably in danger of saying too much. Because obviously, face-to-face -face discipling is hugely important. But there's something about people who get through with God in a worship context that takes you way beyond face-to-face -face confrontation sometimes. Because God did it in their spirit. I think if someone had said to me, I think you should put your tesser in, I would say, get lost. But when God said it to me in the worship, that was it. 
When God says, you know, you're lifting your hands and, 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 and you say, I want to see you, Lord. And, and people, actually, they're looking at all sorts of stuff. On their laptop, they're looking at this stuff. And, but in the worship, God's doing things. We are restored from exile to the presence of the Lord. It's huge. And so, the question I've been asked to look at, why should we be a people of God's presence? Well, it's our greatest privilege. The human race is exiled, banished. We're allowed back in. You who are far off, you're the very household of God. A dwelling place of God in the Spirit. It's a high privilege, high privilege. And so we need to learn to worship in spirit and in truth. Expecting encounter. The way we start a meeting, helping people, they're coming to God now. We come to expect to meet Him. Overstating something else can rob you of that whole sense. So becoming close to Him, facing Him, meeting Him, being a people of the presence. And also, it helps people in their own personal walk with God in His presence. If that morning, in the worship, they really met God, it lifts their own expectation of meeting Him in their private devotions. When they've touched Him in the corporate, they can touch Him again more. I mean, these things feed one another. I appreciate that. But many of our dear friends come in with heavy burdens, pressures, distractions, temptations, the presence of the Lord is a massive magnetic pull to set them free from this passing age. Okay, I think I'll better stop there. The next session is supposed to start in a quarter of an hour. Um, I don't know if you want to ask a few questions and we'll see how we go. Does anybody want to um, comment or question on what we've been talking about? So uh, we've experimented with where the musical part of worship and where the teaching fit as far as do we worship first or do we teach first, do we teach first and then worship first. Um, and and I, we want to kind of keep it fresh, and so at one point we kind of kept people guessing, like, what's going to come first this week? And we did that for about a month. Uh, could you just kind of speak to that about the practicalities of how you order your worship and keep it from becoming, like, dogmatic and close-fisted and, and yet also having some kind of ex expectation of what's going to happen? I wasn't going to, but it's a very good question. I mean, I think to some degree, uh, people are creatures of habit and they get used to a certain approach. I think um, we can help people by being sensitive to that, but we might also want to help people because we feel that this particular word I have this week will open up worship and it would be better if I could speak maybe before we worship, because the word will lead into that. Sometimes the word will do the opposite. It will not inspire worship, maybe it inspire a bit of introspection. The word might, you know, you may not feel I want to worship now, because uh, actually I need to go and reflect on that. Uh, so I would feel, if you have that liberty, now not every, every church has got that liberty because of children. And uh, so children sometimes go in or out at certain times in meetings. And so you're not free always to... I would say switching around a lot can confuse the people simply because we feel we know where we are. Uh, but I would say there are some sermons that we would give which will inspire and motivate more fellowship with God, and it might be better to preach that before. Um, sometimes it's the opposite. The preaching 
looking, actually maybe wanting people to come forward and respond now. Uh, other reasons there might be application that doesn't lead to worship. So I think it's, that's, that would be my rule of thumb. What, what am I expecting out from the preach? What, where does it seem to fit? I'm kind of new to New Frontiers, and so I've, I've noticed that the worship does go how, what, how you've suggested, and so I'm coming from more of a Jesus, there's just something about that name, and I'm, and I'm just thinking, you know, since this is a relationship, does it always have to be doctrally profound? I mean, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying, but can't we just say, you know, Jesus thinking about you excites me. Can we just sing that? I mean, I, isn't that good? I think we can sing very simple songs. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying every song should be, you know, Calvin set to music, you know. I think. <laughs> <laughs> having, having said that, we were uh, driving down this mountain the other day, and the guy who was driving the car had one of Luther's great hymns. Um, I think Sheila Walsh was singing, actually, but it was a great... I mean, Luther's hymn is so full of doctrine. You're, you go, whoa, this is amazing. So I think truth helps us. But I, I agree that simple songs, what I felt was about that when there's something about that name, and I'm being a bit cruel, um, <laughs> but I just thought it was so silly. And I, but I think other, there can be simple songs that don't, they can be just simple. And I, I love simple songs, you know, and I'm not trying to say they always have to be profound. Uh, but I just feel they, they need to be focused in some way or another. So, yeah, I think we can sing, sing, sing the name Jesus. I, I don't have problems with that. I just think something about that name is kind of... Uh. Somebody Google that. As a follow-up, I'm curious if there are certain themes that you feel that you see are missing in our typical repertoires of worship songs. I don't know that I, I think one of the things I like, I mean, I think songs that declare something prophetic are exciting, but I'm not sure. I mean, one time, one of our guys at home, Stuart Townend, actually said, I don't think we sing enough songs of, uh, oh gosh, what's the word? Um, the, many of the psalms are psalms of kind of reflection, even of pain. And uh, he, so he wrote a great song, How Long. Now, to be honest, it's, it's not necessarily how long. You, know, you don't necessarily feel it lends itself to corporate worship, but we sang it uh, once. We were on BBC, and our church meeting was broadcast. And um, it was very interesting, really, because people often think of charismatics as happy, clappy, mindless. That's the kind of attack we get. And, and he wrote a great song about how long. And while he was singing that, the, the BBC television showed photographs of uh, poverty in Africa and all sorts of situations. And I think there are songs in the Bible that are saying, Lord, where are you? Now, you don't necessarily always look for that in a worship meeting, but it is in the Psalms. And so I think it may be, it may be, there should be more songs like that of lament, I think they would be called. But I'm not sure they're particularly appropriate. And when we first met with John Wimber, again, time goes by, so I'm not sure if anyone would necessarily be reminded of the context, but they had a, a very narrow um, selection of songs, which were I and you sort of songs, I love you, I love you. And I mean, they were pretty and usually very pleasant, but I thought I'd love some more breath. 
that does say something about God. And I think some of the songs that have a kind of prophetic purpose or story, I guess Stuart's In Christ Alone has a kind of a story. So you, you come through the cross, you come through the resurrection, you come... So, but I'm not trying to be over-prescriptive. Uh, it may sound as though I am. But I, if I can just say, I'm, I'm not wanting to be over-prescriptive. I'm just trying to say, let's have songs that... I, I once heard Barney Coombs, uh, an apostolic father, dear man of God, he said, when I sing, I want to say in the song what I want to say to God. You know, Does this song say what I'd love to say to God? And I, and I thought, that's really helpful. That a song should be saying what we want to say to God, rather than this is a nice, upbeat, pleasant melody at the moment. This is a popular one at the moment. And, uh, and people can get very distracted. We had a rather poor worship meeting at home once. I said to the guy afterwards, well, what, what, what was it about? He said, well, Chris Tomlin's very popular at the moment, so I sang his songs. I thought, wow, this is a strange sentence. <laughs> it had very little to do with our worship. And I'm not against Chris Tomlin, he's written some great songs. But the worship leader got under some pressure. These songs are popular at the moment, so I thought we'd sing them. And uh, he's popular at the moment, so I found some of his new ones, which nobody knew. And... Uh, I mean, some, we could get ever so pragmatic, couldn't we? I don't want to go too far down the track. Uh, yeah, I think I've said... I just, w- just uh, you uh, made reference a time or two uh, uh, expressing a certain amount of concern to an over-degree of pragmatism that can invade uh, meetings now. Would you care to elaborate? Well, I think I've said... Uh, As I say, I hate being over-prescriptive because I think it could kill people off. And and, and even talking about worship is a bit of a problem because you can become self-conscious. Ah, well, Terry said this and then this and this and this. It's a bit like going with the the golfing uh, professional, isn't it? So he says, no, no, don't do that with your elbow. Do that and do this. So next time you go and hit the ball, there's the ball there and you're thinking elbow here, hand there, hand, you know, you're, you're thinking of all this stuff, and with worship, you can think, oh, I've got to do that, must do that, mustn't do that, and we forget God, we're just trying to remember all this stuff we were told, so I don't want to be over-prescriptive. All I feel is that there is a debate at the moment in some quarters, I picked it up, as I said, in South Africa, where if we are over-focused on the evangelistic purpose of this meeting, over-focused. You can rob the saints of their sense of privilege and encounter of God because our main preoccupation is the unsaved. Now, what I'm saying is you push it too far. There is, I think, a very healthy middle ground. And I have no problem with being sensitive to the outside. I mean, I think we can learn so much from people like Tim Keller... I, I, I fantastic things to learn about being gospel relevant. I really believe there's much to learn, and I would I want to keep learning it. But I think if we if we make our people think this is an evangelistic meeting every time, then we will lose quite a lot of what I've been talking about in this session, which I think is tragic. If that should happen, I think give 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 another half a generation, you'll need another charismatic move. Because people will forget what we found. 
just because we, we just became an evangelistic group. Uh, well, nothing wrong with being evangelistic, but you'll find another generation will break through and say, I'm longing for God. And I don't want to lose, I don't want to give them that problem. I want people to feel that we're meeting with God. We're enjoying his presence together. And I heard Matt Chandler say something I thought was very profound. He said, some people say, in order to reach the lost, cut down the worship. And he said, no, I don't want that. He said, if I introduce my wife to somebody, I want them to know I'm very enthusiastic about my wife. And someone else talked to me about missional worship. And I, I said, it's like kissing your wife to impress somebody else. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. I really don't. So I want to come to worship. And I, and I think, to be honest, and, I, and I, uh, I, in the UK, by the time someone's come to church, they've already come a long way to even come into our building. They wouldn't be there. They're, they're, they're some, and so some people are very they're oversensitive. That's what I would think. Whereas, to be honest, if they've stepped into your building, they've come a long way already just to be there. So if we tone our whole meeting around what do they expect when they come in, it's, you're robbing, whatever the percentage is, 90% of the people in the place, of their meeting with God because you pushed it too far of being aware of the outsider. Am I making myself clear? I mean, that's... Uh, I, I, and I'm, I'm, I, I do believe there's a middle ground, and I have no problem with it at all, uh, of being uh, sensitive to the newcomer. I feel that the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came power of God came, the presence of the Lord was so phenomenal, it drew people. And the gospel was the explanation why these people look like this. What was the gospel? These people are not drunk like you think. This is that. And so being full of God was what provoked people to ask the questions. Today, people go to church, they expect it to be pretty boring. And so to encounter life... And very often, I think, actually, I found the outsider, the genuine outsider, is fairly fascinated with something supernatural. The religious are sometimes put off by the liveliness. Religious people are. Outsiders, they're pretty used to liveliness. They go to parties and things. Uh, they've got no problem with it. So, okay, we'll stop there.